Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the SF Young Professionals Book Club podcast. Our book this November is The God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy. It won the Booker Prize in 1997. The one thing that all of us at book club could agree on was that Arundhati Roy's writing is gorgeous. But we disagreed on just about everything else. (laughs) So some people thought that the plot was too slow or too confusing. Others absolutely loved it. Some people thought that the characters were really fascinating and fully fleshed out, but others thought the characters were one-dimensional. Some people thought the pacing was too slow. And I think the biggest mystery to all of us was who or what is the god of small things? You know, some people thought it meant Velutha, and some people thought it just referenced this abstract notion that we're supposed to figure out. So I'm hoping that by the end of this uh, podcast, um, you will join the rest of us who experience several epiphanies about this uh, intricate and deeply layered book. So as usual, we'll start out with first impressions of the book. My first impression was literally the first paragraph of this book. I remember I encountered this book many years ago. I think I was busy studying for exams back then, but after reading this paragraph, I told myself I have to come back when I'm free and finish the whole book. So I'm just going to read this paragraph for you now. Chapter 1. Paradise, Pickles, and Preserves May in Imenum is a hot, brooding month. The days are long and humid. The river shrinks and black crows gorge on bright mangoes in still dust-green trees. Red bananas ripen. Jackfruits burst. Dissolute bluebottles hum vacuously in the fruity air. Then they stun themselves against clear window panes and die, fatly baffled in the sun. Now, I just think that's beautiful. And the best part of this book is that you can find sentences like that on every page. So another first impression from one of our members, Tang, was that the first part of the book reminded him of a Wes Anderson movie. So very whimsical, quirky, dysfunctional family. I think we see this most acutely in the scene of Sophie Mall's funeral because we know something really terrible has happened. A young girl just died, but yet we see the funeral from a child's point of view when Rahel is noticing the bee dying in a coffin flower or the baby bat that crawls up her aunt's sari. But um, midway through the book, it started to feel more like a Lars von Trier movie. And then yet another member said that the story of this Indian family actually did not strike him as that quirky or weird at all because from the stories he's heard back home in India, you know, the story of this family is actually not that far from the truth. Another first impression is that Arundhati Roy makes many Western references in this book. For example, um, Elvis Presley and his puff. Uh, the Sound of Music, which they go to see, and references to Catholics and Christians and baby Kuchama watching Western TV shows. Um, So I felt that there weren't many references to, for example, like Indian TV shows or Indian songs. Um, The only Indian pop culture reference that we remember is the Malayali comedian actor at the airport, Adur Basi. Um, But actually another member disagreed with this. Yeah, I actually thought that the lo- 
she made a lot of local references that I wouldn't show her anyone who's not from India would get. So I had a complete Oh, interesting. Okay, maybe you recognize them and yeah, we didn't. Because yeah. anything is called uppercase. Anything that, like, words that start with the, where the first letter is uppercase, they shouldn't be. Like, common words that is uppercase. Uh -huh. Those usually are references to something oh, local. That's a pattern I would I see. see. Okay. And the way she would write. Yeah. Like, the orange drink, lemon drink, uncle, that's oh, all yeah. capital, yeah. capital, capital, and then... Yeah, yeah, you will find a lot of people at train stations who call them that... Uh, in, in, in Hindi, um, it's more like orange, so the equivalent would be, yeah, the guy who makes orange juices, uh, orange juice banana bala, which is the orange drink uncle, mm, okay. so that's where I think she got that from. So it was cool to learn that some of the title case phrases were actually local Indian references. I don't think I, I noticed that before. But we also noted that some of the other title case words that Roy used were literary devices. For example, when Esther goes to the male bathroom alone, then he is referred to as Esther alone with capital E and capital A. And she does this with um, the history house and the terror and other phrases like that. So that wraps up our first impressions, and we're going to move on to the first topic now, which is about the characters. So we started off this discussion by talking about cast, and somebody pointed out that even though Valutha is from the untouchable cast, he is actually the kindest and most competent character in the book. So when we think about it, he, you know, he's handsome, he knows how to repair everything and build things and fix things. Uh, not only that, but he has a great sense of humor and he's really good with the kids. So essentially, I think that he is perfect and one-dimensional in that respect because he has no flaws and he basically serves to be this idealized martyr character uh, f to represent the wronged, uh, untouchable cast. One of our members actually felt that all the characters in the book were one-dimensional, not just Velutha, but even some of the main characters. So in the book, there's this running motif where the twins think of loss or death as blank-shaped holes in the universe. For example, the elephant-shaped hole in the universe or the Joe-shaped hole in the universe. Now, Nicholas and Tang, two of our members, have a pretty fascinating exchange about this. But it almost makes it feel like the twins themselves were the like human shaped hole of the universe. They almost felt like holes, right? Like they they kind of were just like really empty. That, at least that was the impression I got. From them. Like I I felt like they were just like the absence of character. <laughs> yeah, so I, I feel part of that could be because of how strange they are. Just because like you, you don't really know people like that. Like so I'm a triplet, and so like really. Yeah, and, and so, yeah. Are you a triplet? Oh, cool. Yeah. Like, we're so not. only one third, right? <laughs> yeah, but even then, I mean, so I talk to my brothers like every day and we share a lot of very similar interests. But even then, we're like nowhere near as close as the brother and sister like turned out to be. Like, I have a lot of like similar experiences with, of like wanting to be together and like sharing things. But even then, they take it to like a whole other like dysfunctional levels. So while we're on the topic of the twins, I thought that Estha was by far much more strange than Rahel, and his character seemed much more empty as well. My burning question about him the whole time was, why was it necessary for Arundhati Roy to write that traumatic scene between him and the orange drink, lemon drink man? 
I mean, I think it's one of the best written scenes in the whole book, but what does it actually contribute to the plotline? Like, Rahel knew something was up, even though they didn't speak about it. Like, they, they were just, like, so in sync. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that she could tell, like, some, something is wrong with Esther. And, in a way, like, that moment was, like, the diverging point for them. Like, it's where they, like, split apart. And then when they get back together at the end of the book, like, oh, that's okay. when they, like... So do you think what happened with the orange drink, lemon drink man was what made them need to have sex at the end? <laughs> I, th- I think it's part of it. Like, I mean... I- And so we discover that the orange drink man's act of pedophilia turns out to be the pivotal moment of the whole book, because it is this incident that leads to Esther retreating into himself, he becomes insecure about losing his mother's love, and he's afraid that the orange drink man will come and visit him in his home, so that's what leads him to plan to run away in the boat with Rahel and Sophie Mall, who insists on tagging along. And this, of course, leads to Sophie Mall's death, which in turn indirectly leads to Velutha's death since the blame is pinned on him. And so I think it's extraordinary that the author manages to turn this small thing, one child's trauma, into a whole host of snowballing tragedies. And throughout this whole saga, we see that it is Esther who bears the brunt of this trauma because, first of all, he's the one who was violated by the lemon drink man. And on top of that, he's the one who is called by the police inspector to point the finger at Velutha. And he sees Velutha badly beaten in his prison cell. I think that the guilt from this act is what later causes him to stop talking for many years. After this, of course, he is sent away to live with his father and separated from his mother and sister, whom he loves so much. And so where does Rahel come into all of this? Compared to Esther, her life is pretty normal. She has the opportunity to go to school. She even gets to go live abroad in America, and she gets married. However, throughout the whole thing, she is rebellious and gets expelled from school. She ends up unhappy in her marriage and gets divorced. She exhibits all these signs of self-destructiveness. And so we have to realize that Rahel is damaged too, both from being separated from her twin, as well as vicariously feeling Esther's pain through her empathic bond with him. And so when they have sex at the end, it's obviously a very controversial and taboo topic that shocked a lot of people. But in a sense, it had to happen because either she had to fix him, she had to heal his trauma, or they both together had to fix their own relationship as twins. Now on to the next topic we'll talk about how politics played a role in the characters' lives. So the story begins in 1969, which is a special time in Kerala, because as the author points out, it's in the midst of the Communist Party actually taking power in Kerala, one of the few states that the Communist Party is actually successful in. Several prominent characters in the story are communists, like Velutha, Chako, and Comrade Pillai. So what's the significance of Chako being a communist? 
One theory is that because communism and leftism were pretty fashionable topics among the intellectual elite back in the 60s and 70s, so since Chaco went to Oxford and was pretty elitist, it makes sense that he was exposed to those ideas and was attracted to them. Another theory is that it just adds a bit of nuance and contradiction to his character because he himself is a landowner and a factory manager. And yet he still wants to fight for the communist cause. In my opinion, it really just serves to make Chaco that much more comical and ridiculous. Now, our final topic is the god of small things. It's in the title, but what does it really mean? So we first encounter the term small god in the first chapter of the book, page 19 in my paperback version. She starts off by talking about a look in Rahel's eyes. So Rahel's husband was exasperated because he didn't know what that look meant. He put it somewhere between indifference and despair. He didn't know that in some places, like the country that Rahel came from, various kinds of despair competed for primacy. And that personal despair could never be desperate enough. That something happened when personal turmoil dropped by at the wayside shrine of the vast, violent, circling, driving, ridiculous, insane, unfeasible public turmoil of a nation. That big god howled like a hot wind and demanded obeisance. Then small god, cozy and contained, private and limited, came away cauterized, laughing numbly at his own temerity. Inured by the confirmation of his own inconsequence, he became resilient and truly indifferent. Nothing mattered much. Nothing much mattered. And the less it mattered, the less it mattered. It was never important enough, because worse things had happened. In the country that she came from, poised forever between the terror of war and the horror of peace, worse things kept happening. So small god laughed a hollow laugh and skipped away cheerfully, like a rich boy in shorts. He whistled, kicked stones. The source of his brittle elation was the relative smallness of his misfortune, he climbed into people's eyes and became an exasperating expression. So I think this is one of the most revealing passages in the book because Arundhati Roy clearly lays out the two sets of issues that she'll be tackling. The first set are the big things, like the religious, political, and caste turmoil that is rocking India at the time, right? And then the small things are the little personal misfortunes and despairs that the characters face. For example, not being able to love who you want to love or being sexually violated by an adult. There are all these things that the characters cannot talk about. And the only person or abstract deity who can champion these causes, these little things for them, is the god of small things. The next time we encounter the god of small things is in chapter 11, the chapter named after him, in which Amu is having a pleasant afternoon dream about a cheerful one-armed man who is paying her a good amount of attention, and he could only do one thing at a time. If he held her, he couldn't kiss her. If he kissed her, he couldn't see her. If he saw her, he couldn't feel her. At the end of the dream, she asks herself, who was he, the one-armed man? Who could he have been? The god of loss? The god of small things? The god of goosebumps and sudden smiles? Of sour metal smells? So, in this passage, we're beginning to come closer to the identity of the god of small things. 
It's especially peculiar how this man can only do one thing at a time. And in our discussion, we noted that each of the characters in the family has really one main trauma or one small thing that haunts them for the rest of their lives. For example, Mamachi because she was beaten by her husband, Papachi because he never had that moth named after him, Chako still loving Margaret, and baby Kachama's unrequited love for the priest. And in order to represent these traumas, these small things, Arundhati Roy assigns little objects to the characters, like Mamachi's violin and Papachi's moth, and baby Kochama's cream buns and her rosary, for example. And I think that's one of the things that gives her writing this incredibly vivid descriptive quality, because she pays such attention to detail about the objects that surround these characters' lives. As one of our members put it, the big things were small to the characters, and the small things were big to them. So there's that cool literary contrast there. So we begin to suspect from Amu's dream that the god of small things actually refers to Velutha. And then at the end of chapter 15, the author confirms this because she says, He was walking swiftly now towards the heart of darkness, as lonely as a wolf, the god of loss, the god of small things naked but for his nail varnish. So the nail varnish has to refer to Velutha. The other thing we know is that Velutha has a connection to every member of the family. He is an employee of both Mamachi and Chako, and he is a father-slash-friend figure to the twins, and of course he is Amu's lover. We know that the small things sort of consume every member of this family, and Velutha, even though he's an outsider, he kind of comes in to soothe them. Like, you know, he solves problems at the factory and he gives love to the love-deprived Amu and her children. At the very end of this book, there is a wonderful passage. Even later, on the 13 nights that followed this one, instinctively they stuck to the small things. The big things ever lurked inside. They knew that there was nowhere for them to go. They had nothing, no future. So they stuck to the small things. They laughed at ant bites, clumsy caterpillars, beetles, fish, praying mantises, and the minute spider who lived in a crack in the wall whom they give a name to. As another member of our book club pointed out, Arundhati Roy actually pays a disproportionate amount of attention to insects in this book. If you read and you'll notice that's also the reason why Papachi was an imperial entomologist. And that's because insects are also small things. Thank you. <laughs>